Normally when I get up here and talk in the beginning, you guys are all welcoming each other, but this time we won't be doing that, so you've already welcomed one another. All right. Yeah, everybody's like, wow. You, there's no way we can just kind of bring it on in, huh? Okay. That's all right. Look at Johnny and Ethan over here. I'll be preaching to them a second, and then I'll be like, I could break out some of the 80s dancing. Am I on, dude? Because I'm off mute. Okay, you guys just don't hear me well enough. It's on. I can be a loud Italian. Y'all know me. So, all right. The reason I'm up here is, I mean, Grady's not sick. He's here, and everything's good. But uh, no, about probably early mid-June, he came to the leadership and some of the Sunday school teachers and just said, hey, guys, if there's an attribute on the list ahead that you feel like you really want to teach or that has a heart for, you've really enjoyed teaching it before, let me know, and just to get some of the elders and other leaders involved in teaching and stuff. So um, when this one, I saw Peace and Order, I'm like, oh, I would love to do that one. So it's kind of been a little bit of my heart with the shepherding thing and kind of has to do with that a little bit. Um, and and as, as Grady and I talked, it surprised me. And how many of you were surprised to see that on the list? Let's be honest. Did anybody think about it? It's unusual. It's not a normal, as Grady and I talked, it's not a normal quality you see on a list of attributes of God about his nature in that sense of the books we've seen and all that. But as Grady mentioned to me, uh, one of our favorite theologians, Wayne Grudem, who's a teacher out at Fuller Seminary, and um, the one book when Grady came into my office the first day and we, we just met and he's looking at all of my books and we're testing things and, you know, just comparing notes. We both had the exact same theology book. We loved it. Both had systematic theology by Wayne Grudem. It's something I've been using for a while and he has too. But Wayne Grudem is the only one that I could find, and as Grady researched, the only theologian that really surfaced this, and I'm glad he did, because it really is, after studying it more and diving into scriptures, you see in your notes, the multiple scriptures and just who revealing who God is, I think this should be in more other books in revealing his attributes and qualities. So I'm so glad Wayne did this. And I'm going to kind of use his quote and his definition to kind of springboard from, in a sense, because just how he put it and how he described um, the Lord in this way and kind of giving us a springboard to move forward in this. But I also love, if you guys can imagine, you're thinking about it, knowing that we're talking about the word peace today and thinking about this week and thinking about the times we're in right now. I mean, I just think there cannot be a more appropriate word or more appropriate attribute or more appropriate quality that we can talk about tonight and really dive into and think about and and how extensive it is and how important it is with where we are right now as a society as a nation i mean as we know this word is not being seen and revealed and manifested in this country it's absolutely the opposite especially what we just saw a few days ago in charlottesville it's the antithesis of this i mean if anybody saw the news coverage from the weekend it is the opposite of this word and so we have an opportunity here tonight and an opportunity in days to come to be the voice of truth and to manifest the presence of God and reveal who he is as the God of peace. And I think it's just very timely for us to get into this today. And hopefully at the end, y'all know how I am with time. There's only about five questions on the back because I really hope at the end of the time that we can really emphasize some prayer. That's my heart. I mean, it may not happen if the Lord takes you guys in your groups. But after some of these questions that we really can come together and stand in the gap for peace, for this word, for who he is as the God of peace, for our nation, for our church, for the city. We had a great, great time today at uh, 
Legacy Anglican up here for John 17, where his pastors get together from different races, different denominations. Y'all, it was so precious. We had 25 guys in there, and it was the, it was the opposite of what happened over the weekend. Here's the body of Christ coming together, different races, different creeds, backgrounds, coming together on the banner of Jesus Christ, praying for our city, praying for our nation. It was just a powerful time to be able to experience that. So we get to bring that part of that into here tonight and get to experience the same thing. So we're going to talk about tonight the God of peace and who he is as um, the God who is peace in order. So let's look at our sheet, our notes here, and we'll follow along and... I appreciate Grady giving me his template because I'm not good at this kind of stuff. So boy, did I do a lot of copy and pasting tonight. I'm not good at that stuff. I'm very slow when it comes to that. But let me just pray real quick as we look here. Lord, we thank you so much for tonight. We thank you for your presence. Lord, where two or three are gathered, you are in our midst. And we know you're here, and we know that you desire to teach us by your spirit. So we ask you to come, Holy Spirit as teacher, and may CJ be silent, and may you teach tonight. We just want to hear from you. We want to have understanding of who you are as the God who is peace. And uh, for such a time as this, Lord, during this time of our nation, we need you so much. We need to understand this so well because each of us in this room, if we are followers of Christ, have a specific calling in the area of peace in this world. So I pray you make that clear tonight and we see you for who you really are in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, just a little introduction here just to lay some foundation. Judges chapter 6, verse 23 and 24, and we'll come back to that in a moment. But it says, but the Lord said to him, peace be to you. The Lord is speaking to Gideon here. Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it the Lord is peace. We'll talk about that in a moment. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33. Paul said here to the church at Corinth, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And Wayne Grudem kind of sets the tone. Um, Again, why even Grady put this on here? And I'm so glad he did. Wayne says, although peace and order have not traditionally been classified as attributes of God, Paul here in 1 Corinthians 14 indicates another quality that we could think of as a distinct attribute of God. We turn over here and just very quickly, as he does each week, I just left that there. A little review, the past few weeks we've talked about the omniscience of God, these communicable attributes that we share with the Lord in part, and that's the key, he is God and we are not. But we get to share in this where God is all knowledgeable, he's all knowing, we get to share in part in his knowledge where he is fully wise and wisdom, where he is fully truthful, and he is fully omnipotent, meaning complete, powerful, almighty, powerful, and we get to operate in part in the power of the spirit um, here on earth as well, in part. And so again, this encompasses the unity of God, and it's interesting that's even there because that is a part of what we were going to talk about tonight is the unity of the Lord and how we get to share in that. So God is peace, and as Grudem said, he added to that word order, as we're going to see that by the definition, it kind of are synonymous and kind of go together in a part of the definition. So as we like to do, we're going to break it down, the word peace in the Hebrew, very familiar, we all know is what? Shalom. And primarily, all through the Old Testament, it's primarily known and being defined as being whole or complete. These other aspects, even in the Greek, they do come into play. But most of the Old Testament has to do with this wholeness or completeness. And then at the end, it does have at times having to do with the welfare uh, of, of things or state of things. The Greek word is irene. And it, um, shalom also means these things, but not quite as much through the Old Testament. But irene is tranquility, quietness, rest, contentment, order, 
and harmony between individuals. And as you can see, the word peace encompasses a lot. <laughs> there's a lot in this word. And there's a lot of ways it's described and revealed all through Scripture. And so in different verses, it can mean so many different things at that moment. But as we're going to see that. But the beauty of it is um, you can even see just by the definition of where we're going with this and how God has revealed himself through this word and how we have a part in it. What I, I love bringing some context, and it was neat as I was studying um, I was studying using my New American Standard, which is like the ESV, which I'm using here to read and Grady uses every week. Um, it's a word-for-word -word translation, meaning they took the Hebrew and the Greek and word-for-word -word they translated it. And so when I looked up the word peace through one of my little software things, it showed up and came up, and I, Nikki really appreciated this because it was cute. I don't know if you all have seen her little blogs about how God has spoken to her through the number three. And then recently it's been 333, that anytime she sees that, it's a reminder to pray for our children. Just God has done this neat little thing with her. But when it popped up, the word peace shows up in 333 verses, which I even think is amazing to think of the word, the number three, and what it means complete, <laughs> the, the Trinity, you know, wholeness. But that word actually does show up 333 times throughout Scripture. And here's an interesting point. I want us to think about this. As we know who God is and how he ordered things, it's a part of his nature, the first time the word peace is ever mentioned is spoken by God. He himself spoke the word. But it doesn't happen for almost 2,000 years since creation. Isn't that amazing? Can you think about all that took place with Noah and all the original guys and Methuselah and all the beginning and going through the flood and everything? That word was never spoken in Scripture by God or anybody else. But in Genesis 15, 15 was the first time the word peace was ever spoken, and it was by God himself. And he was just telling Abraham, you shall go to be with your fathers in peace at a place of rest. But I just thought that was interesting in the context of this word and us learning about who God is, that it took that long for it to even be spoken um, in Scripture or revealed. I have on your sheet here, I love Webster's 1828 Dictionary. I always love going there. It's almost like a little seminary book. Because Noah Webster always uses scripture when he wrote the dictionary to reveal the definition of words because um, he used the Bible when he started writing it. But it's public tranquility, that quiet order and security, which is guaranteed by the laws. Just by looking at that definition. Quiet order and security, which is guaranteed by the laws. It's harmony, concord, a state of reconciliation between parties at variance. I love that last little part as we're going to see that come into play. Wayne Grudem's definition, and this is what we're going to springboard from. He says, God's peace means that in God's being and in his actions, he is separate from all confusion and disorder, yet he is continually active in innumerable, well-ordered, fully controlled, simultaneous actions. Whew, that man's much smarter than me. But I love this definition. So... In God's being, and we're going to look at it, in his actions, he's separate from all confusion and disorder, which is the opposite of peace. But yet, and this is where another part of God's um, attributes and his qualities come in, this continually active and innumerable, well-ordered, fully controlled and simultaneous actions is almost a, a similar definition to a word, and that's providence. God's providence. God's providence in the 1828 is defined as, I love this, active foresight, timely care, the superintendence of God that he exercises over his creation. 
So when we think of peace sometimes, sometimes we think of peace, we're going to have a peaceful time, we're going to be what? Just chilling out, right? Inactivity, right? The absence of conflict or the absence of what? Activity. Well, that's just on the contrary. I mean, has God ever taken a day off? No, God is the most active being ever in the history because that's who he is. So what I love about this is, is peace is, again, it's, so, it's an amazing, it's even hard to say a definition, but what it is is the um, epitome of who God is. But there can be a place of rest and tranquility and contentment, but full action at the same time. God actively involved, timely care. That's what I love about his providence. That's why we could say he never is not around or never fully involved in your life. He doesn't take a break or a timeout or kick back somewhere. My dad used to say going to play golf in the Bahamas. You know, God never does that. He's fully involved in your lives, 24-7, active oversight. And it's, that's where a part of this has to do with his providence. So we're going to come from this. The first part we're going to look at is peace and order in God's being. Go to Judges if you have your Bibles, because um, I want to elaborate on this verse. Um, Judges chapter 6, because I want to lay a foundation here. This is just so cool. Judges chapter 6, verse 12. And if you have your Bibles, that's fine. I, I'll just read it. It's um, the, the story before the verse here. This is really amazing. This verse, Judges 6, and this is, again, think about it. This is even probably almost... 3,000 years or so more, I mean, after creation, the first time in Scripture that God is ever referred to as being peace instead of actively giving peace or, but where it says literally the Lord is, meaning saying he's, this is who he is in his person. First time out of all up to judges, it's never been declared. So I want to read the preface of that because of just the story and the context of God showing up in this way and why he was declared as such. So Judges chapter 6, verse 12, familiar story to many of you. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to Gideon, this is to Gideon, the angel of the Lord showed up to Gideon. He was a young man at the time. The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. So the context is, are they free? No, they, there's another group controlling. Is there peace in, the, in, the, in Gideon's mind? No. There's disorder. They're enslaved. They're not, they're not free people. Um, and so in Gideon's mind, just like Egypt, they're not a free people. They're not living in peace and rest and contentment and tranquility. So that's Gideon's mindset as he's talking to the angel of the Lord. And look what uh, verse 14 says, so key. And who turned to him? Who is it? The Lord, okay? The Lord turned to him and said, and I just want to read the reference. The angel of the Lord is the Lord. <laughs> I love when God shows up this way in the Old Testament. I, I looked at Sproles and MacArthur and Grudem and a whole bunch of dudes, and I've studied the Theophanies before, but for, as this declaration says that Jesus pre-incarnate showed up here. So it's so amazing. So the angel of the Lord's part is the Lord himself, Pre-incarnate Christ, second person of the Trinity. And he says, the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. So he's given him a charge. You're going to be set free. You're go I'm going to give you freedom in this. Do not I send you? And Gideon said, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my father's house. The Lord said to him, but I will be with you and you'll strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, 
If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And Gideon said, I mean, and the angel of the Lord said, he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and leavened cakes and the uh, the ephah of flour. The meat he put in the basket and the broth he put in a pot. Brought them to him underneath the uh, terebinth tree, um, yeah, the terebinth and presented them. The angel of God said to him, take the meat and the 11 cakes, put them on the rock, pour the broth over them, and he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out on the tip of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the 11 cakes and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the 11 cakes. The angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. What's supposed to happen at that point if you see God face to face back then? (laughs) He's a little nervous. But he encountered the Lord. And what did God say in verse 3? But the Lord said to him, peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, the Lord is peace. It's the first time that declaration was made. I wanted to preface that because of what Gideon experienced. Why would he declare this place? The Lord is peace. Because he experienced the presence of God in a personal, intimate way, face to face. And knowing what he declared that word to mean, God was about to fulfill for Israel and himself. First time ever that it was declared in his being that the person of God is peace. In Judges 6. And as we see here, it's, it's easy to see in the beginning why this is such an important attribute. And I'm so glad Gruden brought it up. The essence of the Godhead is peace. It's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existing and relating to one another in perfect harmony, completeness, order, and contentment. Grady's talked about this in the past. God the Father, the Son, the Spirit, did they need anything? No. They're perfect. They're whole. They're complete. In perfect relationship, in perfect harmony, something that we can't even fathom and comprehend in our little finite minds. So that representation of Father, Son, and Spirit in this cosmic, universal, amazing relationship is peace. You guys see that? I mean, it's incredible. They are the perfect reflection, the perfect manifestation of the Word, even just by definition. And that's why, again, I'm so glad Gruden brought it up to say it is one of the main quality attributes I see of who God is in His person, just in the nature of God Himself. So what's amazing here is the same Lord who is peace that was declared by Gideon, as we see here in Isaiah 9, it's declared all throughout different parts of Scripture, is the same God that was prophesied about 500 years later here in Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. This is the only other time in the entire New Testament where God was declared, again, his essence being of peace, the prince of peace. It's who he is. No other place in the Old Testament is it only judges in here is that declared. And then once Jesus comes, this is where we see the rest of these scriptures, where God is declared the God of peace in his being, in his very essence and nature for who he is. And we'll go through these quickly and get to this next part. But again, I just want us to continue to remember God in his essence and his being, just in their relationship, is the perfect epitome and perfect manifestation of peace. 
Romans 15, 37. I'm just going to roll through these where the God of peace and saying this is who he is and his nature is revealed as such. May the God of peace be with you all. Paul says again in Romans 16, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Have you guys ever thought about that statement? I mean, think about what we, he just said. The God of what? Peace, of tranquility and contentment and rest. And it will do what? Crush Satan. Seems like what? The opposite, right? But if we know what the peace he's trying to accomplish, what he's trying to accomplish here by the word peace, and we're going to see, which is restoring order, as we're going to see, the only way for that to happen is to be active and to do some crushing. And I just love, again, how we can see that word used in so many ways. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Paul says again in Philippians, I just want to see how many, see the importance of this attribute of how many times he has declared as this. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Paul says, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. First lesson is 5.23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Second Thessalonians 3.16. We're going to look at this one again a little later. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. Hebrews 13.20. Uh, because all those were Paul. Now the writer of Hebrews even says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. There's no, this, I mean, I was looking it up. There's no other phrase. I know he says, you know, God is love and the God of love and God is joy. But there's no other attribute or phrase in all the New Testament that is identified the most with God except peace. This many times. The God of peace, the God of peace. There's no the God of love, the God of love, the God of love, the God of joy, the God. He's not recognized and identified in the New Testament, more than anything else, than the God of peace. And there's a reason for that. I mean, that's why I hope we see the importance of this, especially, I hope you're already getting, for us and what we're called to in this society and what we've been, the privilege of being a part of in this church, of what we're called to in this aspect of peace and who God is in that. So we saw God in his essence, in his being, how God reveals himself. And now we're going to see how peace and order are in God's actions. And this, again... It's just so amazing and pretty self-explanatory when we see that the Godhead's first action in his person was the perfect manifestation of peace and order through creation. I love just even thinking about that. God didn't need anything. He was completely fulfilled and content in himself. And he's going to reveal his glory and his power and who he is as peace and who he is as a God of order through his creation. Let's look at Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God, what? Rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And the verse just before that in Genesis 1 said, on the sixth day, he completed his work, and everything was what? Good. Okay? Everything was good. Everything was perfect in his sight. It was a perfect order. So we even see there, God finished his work. There was a sense of completeness. God rested. He himself experienced peace after he created. But what also is amazing and just awesome to see is God's peace and order in how he created. And guys, we got to see this. I used to love teaching this when I was a principal of um, a little small school and just getting this on 
um, teaching about arithmetic and mathematics and things and how we can encourage kids to love learning because God is learning. God is every subject. And the first thing I learned is like, you could tell a kid to love mathematics because they get to know the nature of God by just learning math. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Describe God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. They're what? Three in what? What is that? Mathematics. He's a, I mean, God is a ratio. He represents math in his being, in his person. Three in one. And then we see as him being a God of order, like arithmetic, how did he create? Day what? One, day two, day three. There's a sequence. There's an order to things. Guys, this is not just for us to enjoy a nice little creation story. This is us to see who God is in his nature, in his power. A God we can trust because this is how he does things. We can trust a God like this in specific things in our lives. And not even just being a God of order, which is arithmetic, an order of things in sequence, but then how he created on each day. Would he have created, the, again, the fish and the birds and all this without having a place to inhabit? No. He's such a wise, as we've talked about, and brilliant, all-knowing God that he did things in an orderly fashion, a proper way to bring peace so that when he created the fish, there was already an ocean for them to be in. <laughs> when he created the birds and the animals, there was already land for them to inhabit. This is the God of order and peace that we see. And at the end of creation, it was perfect. Everything was good. Everything was orderly. Everything was complete, and it was a full manifestation of who he was in his nature on earth revealed as a God of peace. Colossians 1.17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 1 Corinthians 14.33, we mentioned this before. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Now, why would Paul say that? If everything was good, and God is perfectly peace, and why would he want to emphasize God is not a God of confusion because confusion is the antithesis. He's right here contrasting that God is not this, but he is. Confusion, the Greek word is also disorder, chaos, instability. So Paul said this all these uh, millennia later, thousands of years, because he knew something came in to corrupt. Peace and order was corrupted by sin. Confusion, disorder, chaos came from sin And sin originated at the fall of Satan when pride came in. Isaiah 14, 12 through 15. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Now, obviously, Isaiah is referencing the king of Babylon, but every theologian, everything we express that this is a description of uh, Satan and his fall and his attitude in his heart. And what was the key little word that's in most of this verse? That would be the antithesis of harmony and unity. I, 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 I. And it just describes Satan's pride and where it all began. So somewhere in between Genesis chapter, at the end of all that's good, and God rested, in between that moment and Genesis 3, when the, uh, the snake came up or the serpent came up, this took place. There's a lot of speculation and conjecture we will not get into on when that happened. But it has to be clear that that did happen. 
Because the host was created, the heavenlies were created, and at the end of it, he said, all's good, and everything is right, and I rested because everything's good, and then by Genesis 3, a little serpent comes along. But everything was perfect and peaceful until this act, until rebellion came and pride came, starting with Satan himself. So 2 Peter 2.4, just to give context, because Satan was not alone in this. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, meaning the fallen ones that followed him, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So a host of angels followed Satan, sinned as well. June 6 is the other reference that talks about this. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but they left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains until under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So this is where disorder, confusion, instability, chaos, the perfection of peace that God established was going to be corrupted by. As we say here, Satan continued his rebellious mission by deceiving Adam and Eve to sin, bringing disorder and separation on the earth. Sin broke the peace. Do you guys see that? There was peace, perfection. Everything God did was for perfection and was peace. That's what he established. It was his standard. And sin came in and broke that. It brought a separation between God and man. I want to read Genesis 3.15 real quick. You don't have to go there. But this is kind of called the kingdom verse because this is where God spoke to the serpent and kind of set the tone for even where we are today. The fall had already happened. Adam and Eve had sinned. And it said, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15, key verse. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, other translations say seed, and her offspring or seed. He, this seed, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Right here, God was just launching the beginning of the end for us. Because right at that point, he's saying, there's someone coming, there's a seed, there's an offspring that's coming from woman that's going to crush your head. And from this point on, Satan's mission, which started at the fall, that I want to be God, I know what's best, I deserve to be the most high, as it was declared in Isaiah. From that moment on, his destruction of peace and order and all that is holy and of God was his mission to destroy. But we hear in John 10, he came to kill, steal, and destroy. But that mission started at that verse. Because in Satan's mind, it's like from this point on, I'm going to try to destroy that seed. There will be no peace where I'm concerned. There will be nothing but confusion and deception and disorder from this point on until I destroy that seed. Because he knows if that seed comes to fruition and grows, what? He's, got, he's done. It's over for him. And so I just want to give us the context of the importance of it going all the way back there, this attribute of peace, what God had intended. Satan had a mission to destroy that and to be, bring the antithesis of that. And he does it as the angel of light, as we're going to see in a little bit. But praise God for the plan of redemption, right? God had a plan to restore his peace. Everything was broken. Everything was messed up. Man was separated from God, kicked out of the garden, had consequences of their sin. And God's perfect order and peace was corrupted by sin, but he had a plan to restore peace. And this is where we go back to Isaiah again. Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born. Again, remember, thousands of years from Adam, but hundreds of years 
Even since Judges, where God was declared, where, where Jesus showed up pre-incarnate, this is where they're declaring him coming again. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, there's order, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This is the most blatant, other than Isaiah 53, where it was the prophetic Messiah's coming, but this is who he is. He's going to be this. He's going to be a wonderful counselor, a mighty God. He's the everlasting father, the prince of peace. This is what he's coming to bring because this isn't here right now. There's corruption, there's sin, there's disorder. He's coming to fulfill and restore peace to us, to man. And we're going to see that in a few more of these verses. And then we're going to get into the application of why this is a wonderful communicable attribute for us, how we get to share in this. Romans 5.1, I love this verse. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we read that initially, it's like peace here, and well, peace has such a wide definition. And I believe, as I, you know, looking at the Greek, we only have a harmonious, reconciled relationship with God because of what? Justification. So I love this verse. So it's such a salvation verse. We cannot experience peace with God as a reconciled relationship with him without being justified, without the atoning work of the cross, without Jesus taking our place, atoning for our sins, taking the wrath of God upon himself. It is impossible for us to experience a reconciled, harmonious relationship with Jesus Christ and with God. And that's, what, that's why this verse is so significant for us to know and communicate to people. Peace is non-existent without justification by faith. And that's what that declared. Similar to that in Ephesians 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, and Paul's talking to the Gentiles in Ephesus. So this is so beautiful. He's just talking to them. You guys were far off. You were separated from Christ. But now you have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he, Christ, he, Jesus himself, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Again, another beautiful display of his restoration power, that because of his peace, his reconciliation, harmony, oneness, weeds, Jews and Gentiles can come together because of the blood of Jesus Christ. You no longer have to be separated from God because of what Jesus has done. And then Romans 8, 6, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. And there's some sobering verses, as we're going to say, because we've heard this and we can talk to people. How many people have we heard numerous times on every pageant for the past 50 years, <laughs> every situation we have people with, you know, winning awards and all this, you know, you ask a lady at a pageant, you know, what is your goal for the world? What do you want to see happen? They all say what? World peace, world peace, world. And what does that mean? You know, I mean, I, we can assess. They just want absence of conflict. They want everyone to be a place of rest and tranquility and everyone getting along. And 
this one big, you know, rainbow harmony understand their heart. But here's the sad reality. And I put the word true peace in there because there is a false one. There is one that the world tries to offer. But Scripture is so sobering. True peace is only for followers of Jesus. I mean, Isaiah 48, I put both of them in. They're almost identical to say Isaiah was making a point. He's communicating here. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. And for years, I never saw this until I taught it a few years back, and it just came off the page. We've sung it for years. We always say it during Christmas, Luke 2.14. It's really sobering. Glory to God in the highest, the angels are declaring. And on earth, peace among whom? Not all people everywhere. Not all the world and everyone to come. Who? Only those with whom he is pleased. We usually forget that part during Christmas or when that's declared. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The only one that's going to experience peace on this earth, the way God intended, true peace, as it's what it says in Hebrews eleven six. Who are those with whom he is pleased? Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So very clearly, those without faith can't please God. They're unbelievers. They don't have saving faith in their heart. So when the angels were declaring that, which is amazing to think, they were declaring the coming of the person of what? Peace. He's coming. He's here. Glory to God in the highest. Peace has arrived. And the only ones who's going to experience that peace are those with whom he's pleased with. And that can only happen through saving faith. So what is true peace that they're trying to declare here? And I love this verse, John 14, 27. True peace only comes through the person of Jesus Christ, through God himself. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Keep that in mind. I'm going to read verse 26. They're in the upper room. I'm going to give you guys kind. They're in the upper room having a wonderful time with Jesus. He's so went into them. They had a wonderful time of sharing and God's kind of putting before them a charge before he leaves, it's before he's about to die. Um, the whole dialogue from John 13 on to John 18. And in the midst of that, he shares about the Holy Spirit. He shares about what's to come. And in verse 26, just before this, he says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Now, this is a conversation. So, I mean, how I see this, as I read this just from its, even though we broke it apart, the peace I leave with you, he follows that phrase saying, peace I leave with you, after saying one's coming. I'm going to, someone's coming when I'm gone. As I'm leaving, someone's going to come. I'm going to, peace that's coming is, the, I think, is a person of the Spirit. He's encouraging and saying, you're not going to be alone. Peace will be here. He's coming in the person of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come as your helper, as your guide. So peace I leave with you. And then these next six words are just astounding. If you really contemplate them, my peace I give to you. Have you guys really ever thought about that? That the peace that Jesus himself experiences, his peace in his relationship with his Father, his peace as the second person of the Trinity, just saying, I'm going to give you what I have, my peace. 
I'm about to give you. Not, the, not as the world does, not as what the Satan and the flesh try to offer you, things that are false and a lie, but my peace, what I experienced, the contentment, the tranquility, the rest, the wholeness, the order, the everything that I experienced with my father, I'm going to give it to you. That's incredible that you can experience that same peace that I have in the relationship I have with my father. And it comes, we experience that, you guys, through the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's how peace is so important for us to embrace and to see. And again, as I've been studying this and reading this past few weeks and days, I think as far as an attribute, this is one of the most impacting ones for us as Christians on this earth. As a communicable attribute, because most a lot of them God doesn't share with us, right? Because he's God. But as far as what he shares with us, this attribute of peace is so critical relationally, absolutely at the core of how we communicate and how we relate with others, as we're about to see even further. So true peace comes from God himself through the person of Jesus Christ, through the work of the Holy Spirit. And we get to experience that as we are followers of Christ. Oswald Chambers reflects on that. He says, if I was peaceful and happy, living a clean, upright life, why should Jesus Christ come with a standard of holiness I never dreamt of? Simply because that peace, that worldly peace is what he's referring to, that peace was the peace of death. It's even weird seeing those words together, isn't it? The peace of death. It's a peace altogether apart from God. The coming of Jesus Christ to the natural man means the destruction of all peace that is not based on a personal relationship to himself. What Satan has come to bring, what he brings through the world system and everything, is a piece of death. That's what he offers. That's what he desires for us to be hooked with and to buy into because the second we do, and sometimes it, you know, we always talk about the one degree off a little, as he comes as the angel of light and it looks good, it may smell good, it may, it may taste good, Ooh, I can experience peace with this. And it's all a lie. It's all a facade. And eventually it leads to only one thing is what he does, and that's destruction. And we've got to be so sensitive to that, guys, even as believers, that sometimes we can be duped and drawn into situations where we think it's good and right in this, and the enemy's just sitting back going, yep, come on, experience that peace and rest that I'm providing. And it can lead to this. It is that peace of death. And then we can be that voice, as we're about to see, to wave the flag and go, friends, people, family, don't go down that road. That is not what's real. It is a false peace that only could lead to death because it's not of God. Second Thessalonians 3.16, again, we mentioned this earlier. I love just how Paul says this. Now may the Lord of peace, again, declaration, this is who he is in his being. He's the Lord of peace. May he himself give you peace at all times in every way. Philippians 4, 7, another very familiar passage. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Have you guys ever thought about the peace of God being a protection, like a fortress for you? Have you guys thought about how that could even be that it guards our hearts and minds, it guards our feelings? Because if we're in a place of peace, if we're in a place of rest and contentment in Him, trusting Him, and always when I think of the word peace at times in this context, it happens in different ways. But remember the old Nestle plunge commercial? I'm really dating myself. But there was a Nestle, the tea, iced tea, 
back in they would have a summer commercial where there'd be a pool and a guy would drink some and he would just do this. I'm not going to do it, but fall. Just fall back into the pool. Ah, because it's refreshing. It was like complete abandonment because he knew it was going to be refreshed and it felt good. It was like, ah. Well, see, that's what we can, that's what we all have to experience and can experience and he desires for us to experience every day in our relationship with the Lord. And that's what this piece is here. That posture is what can guard our hearts and minds. It protects us. As we fall back into him, as we fall back into his trust, his faithfulness, his goodness, knowing full well he's going to catch us, he's going to hold us, he's going to sustain us, that guards us. That helps protect our hearts and minds from any schemes of the enemy to try to come in and deceive and bring disorder and all that stuff. Colossians 3.15, we're coming down the home stretch. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Even there, the peace of God rules us. He wants it to govern our hearts as we look to him. So here's the key, how it comes down, how it applies for us. This is a communicable attribute. For God has given us his peace so that we may be his peacemakers in the world. He shares his peace with us. He allows us to share in that, to partner in that, to be his peacemakers. Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I'm going to go through these a little faster because I'm looking at the time. I'm going a little above. Galatians 5, 22 through 25. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus, who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. It is a fruit of the Spirit. Peace is something we share in as being transformed by the Lord. We should walk in that as a part of the fruit. Psalm 34, 14. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Two other places here we're going to see literally tell us as Christians to seek peace, to pursue it, to run after it, to chase it. That's what that means. God is commanding us to seek after, to chase, to run after peace, what it means. Romans 12, 14 through 21. I'm not going to read the first, first Peter one, but I want to read this one. This, pa- this little portion here is how we are to live out. As Grady's been saying the past few weeks on our Sunday sermons, when God comes in, when he trans- there should be a transformation. There should be change, behavioral change. There should be evidence in our life that God has done a work and for that to be revealed and walked out and lived out and seen. And this verse, a little passage here, in my opinion, is one of the beautiful expressions of that, of how we can manifest the peace of God in our lives as the Holy Spirit has transformed us. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. There's peace. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Here's the key part, and many of us do not like to read this. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with how much? How many people? All. As far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, 
but overcome evil with good. I just love that. Peace is all throughout. God's harmony, His order. He's telling us what I love about Paul saying here is kind of like, you know, rhetorical question, if possible, so far as it depends on you. It always depends on us. As Christians, we are to be and walk like who? Jesus. So in any situation we walk into, regardless of the circumstances, we are vessels and messengers of what? Peace. I just love how Paul said it because it's always going to be possible for us. That's what we're called to do, who we're called to be, to be those vessels of peace, to bring harmony. I even love the fact that Paul said, if someone's hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them a drink. That's peace. You're bringing welfare to someone. You're trying to make them whole again to help bring them that aspect of who God is and helping somebody in that way. I'm not going to read 1 Peter 3 because of time, but again it says, seek peace and pursue it. 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful passions, Paul is saying to Timothy, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. I love that he added that on at the end. Because what does that mean for us? We are to pursue peace, righteousness, faith, love, all these things with each other. (laughs) We are to experience community together, a community of faith, helping each other. Because I know a lot of you in here, we've talked, a lot of times it's hard for you to pursue peace. You're not a person who operates that way sometimes. And, and I'm not, we need to help each other along. It's not an isolated thing that we are to do in this pursuit of reaching people and pursuing peace. We're to do it together. And Paul makes that clear there. And one of my favorite verses to close to end this, it all comes together with this. This is how we share in this attribute what God has called us to. Every one of us in this room, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this is what we've been called to. We've got to take this seriously in the aspect of peace and reconciliation. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. You could put in there very easily, we've been called to the ministry of peace. We've been called to the message of of peace. And guys, guess what? It's not an option. This is the beauty of what I want to encourage us with, and we really, this week even, I mean, what a time for us as the body of Christ to speak in to a situation in our nation that is so, has, was so evil and so horrible and has caused such division and strife and chaos and disorder and deception and, and pain and sorrow and all this stuff that we can take this message of who God is and be a messenger of peace and speak into that situation through God's word and who he is and who he claims to be. We have that opportunity this week. We have that opportunity every week, but especially for such a time as this to allow the Holy Spirit an opportunity for us to be that messenger of speaking his contentment, his rest, his order, all that he is as the God of peace. So again, as Grady does each week, and I just add it on because it still applies, (laughs) the challenge for us is we see God in this way, understand who we are in him in this way, that he brought us peace through salvation, through the work of the cross, that we get to experience the God of peace in an intimate, personal way that should lead us to worship. It should lead us to pray as we seek peace for others that we know, as we ask God for wisdom to minister to others and be led by his spirit to be messengers of peace, of harmony, of reconciliation. And then, as I just said, that peace should also lead us to share Christ with others and to give God that opportunity. Guys, and I just want to encourage you, the last thing is y'all, got a few minutes to go to your groups. 
every situation where you see disorder, deception, chaos, instability in relationships, which is mostly where that happens, something at work, other things, we as Christians, at the bare minimum, minimum, should say, God, what is my part? Because we are called to what? Be ministers of peace. Be ministers of reconciliation. And my first thing is just ask the question. We are absolutely adamant. I'm absolutely adamant that we are at least ask the question. Do I have a place here? What, what are you asking me? To be a person of peace, to bring reconciliation, to bring hope, to bring order, to bring who you are as the God of peace into this situation. At least ask. Because, again, if we're related, if we're connected in a situation, and we're bringing the only truth, we're bringing the person of peace into that situation through our lives, how can we not consider it? And, if it's, and again, I know it's going to be fear. It's not my personality. It's not my gifting. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because the God of peace is here in you. He abides in you. He will empower you. He will lead you. That's why I love that verse by Paul. As far as it has to do with you, you pursue, you make peace with all people. You seek, you pursue, you run after it. Because who else is going to, truly? We're it. As the body of Christ, as messengers of peace, there is no one out there in the world of the wicked who are going to have the answer. We're it. So we have a great opportunity to live that way and recognize that. Um, in the weeks, months, years to come until the Lord returns. This is just an exciting time that we get to be a part of this. I'm not going to read through all of these. I mean, you can look at them as um, y'all go through and I went way over. But um, y'all can look at some of these and see if the Holy Spirit leads you for a time of prayer. But um, y'all just, how, how have you experienced the peace of God recently? You can share a little testimony. How does God's peace help us overcome fear for who he is? How does God's peace encourage us to seek him and pray? And then as I talked here at the end, no one were called to be those who pursue peace, peacemakers and ministers of reconciliation. How does that motivate us to do evangelism and relate with people, even other Christians, not just the unbeliever? And then as Grady always likes to put in, what songs do you guys know about God's peace? We may go a little five minutes over, but um, Dave, if you could do a group, since you're here, uh, Steve's here, Gillis.